0: I seem to be taller than this was set for, so I just have to get this. So the verses for today are from Isaiah 53, 6 to 11. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers, he was silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, it was the Lord's will to crush him. And cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of my life and be satisfied by his knowledge that my righteous servant may justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. The second verse is from John 1, 29 to 34. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove, and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The one... The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one.
1: Amen. Thank you, Isaac, for reading the word of the Lord this morning. Uh, There's lots of sheep imagery in those passages and uh people who lived in the agricultural society of israel would have understood uh many of those things about sheep sheep that go their own way and don't follow the shepherd also uh sheep that are silent when they're uh being uh, their wool is being sheared and um then they'll also know very well the role of the the sheep the passover lamb which is uh to remind them always that they were pulled out of Egypt in slavery and the blood of the lamb went on the doorpost so that the death angel would pass over them. And So this is all imagery that Israelite people would understand. Of course, he also read from the New Testament which, where John the Baptist recognized that Jesus is the lamb of God. Jesus is this uh, one-of-a-kind lamb. That has a very special role, and it's not just to be, the, there's a Passover lamb that was sacrificed every year to remind them about the blood uh, in the Passover, but Jesus was the one that was to be sacrificed once and for all, for all sin, and uh, and to take away the sins of everyone. He was the chosen one. So, a lo- amazing how these passages fit together. Isaiah 53, with the first thing he read is written in the time period of the part of the story that we're going to talk about this morning. you see that blue poster. You can hardly make it out. There's a king. He's leading on his castle, and he's pointing up. And we'll talk about that king and, uh, and what, he, what that symbolizes. But uh, it was written in this time. The prophet Isaiah wrote these words about Jesus hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. It's pretty amazing. Because it's very descriptive of exactly, if you if you'd read it and you didn't know what part of the Bible it was from, you might think, oh, that's from the New Testament. Then someone must be talking, reflecting back on what Jesus had done for us. No, this is actually projecting forward. It's a prophecy. And it's a, that's a type of literature in the Bible, and we're actually in the story, we're getting into that part where, more and more we're into uh, the, the parts of the Bible that are prophetic. They're, they're, they're speaking about what God is wanting to speak to the people at that time, but also they speak forward as well. All right, so I'm going to jump into the story here this morning. We've got a feast today we have to get to, and I don't want to you know, have too many tummies rumbling because of my, my slowness, so let's get right into it. I want to talk about what it takes to guarantee failure and success in your life. It boils down to, one word, decisions. The difference between success and failure in your life is going to be decisions. Uh, and we, right, uh, you see the third poster back, the yellow one, the crack. A couple of weeks ago we learned that the, the nation of Israel was cracked in half. It was split between the northern uh, uh, part of Israel, which was still called Israel, and the southern part, which now had the name Judah, because mainly it was the the tribe of Judah, well, and Benjamin, but so you had Jerusalem in Judah, and then in the northern part, you had Israel, and they their capital was Samaria, and um, there was, it was sort of two paths, and uh, a few years ago, I read through the book of Kings with my, my kids, who now, I mean, when they were very little, now they're teenagers, and I'm now, I'm reading through some of these same materials with my six-year-old, my third boy, he's six, and I'm having the very same experience that I had back then. You would read through Kings, and as you do, you find out that it describes some Kings as being good and some Kings as being bad. And, uh, and um, I did a little bit of geeking out last night about all the math on this, and let me share some of my results. Um, the, Israel, the, the, the nation of Israel, after... Uh, Solomon after that crack appeared only lasted 200 more years but the nation of judah the southern kingdom uh lasted uh 300 and i think 45 years yeah 345 years and uh the difference between them was that one of those the northern kingdom never had a good king oh they had kings who repented for the moment but they never had a true good king in god's measurement and uh The measurement that's used in the passages, they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The southern kingdom had a number of good kings. Uh, Eight out of the 20 kings they had were good. Twelve were bad, eight were good. Uh, In the northern kingdom, 19 in a row that were bad. And this is the geek math I did last night. I thought, "How how long do these people reign? And so I went and looked into it. And you know what I found out? I never knew this before last night. Bad kings lasted on average for 11 years. Good kings lasted on average for 33 years. Three times, exactly. Now, I don't know if that's just a coincidence, but I found that very fascinating. And so when you look at the kingdom of Judah, which only had eight kings that were good and 12 that were bad, still the majority of their duration was under good leadership. Because the bad kings tended to get assassinated or, or God had some way of removing them and the good guys lasted longer. So I think that was pretty fascinating, I found it. And uh, you're not finding it fascinating, I can tell. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll have something later for you. This so far has just been for me. All right. But uh, So Israel had 19 bad kings in a row and Judah had 12 bad kings and 8 good kings. So when I read them with my kids, I'd say, okay, I'd read the name of a king and I'd say, what do you think? And the kids would say, good king? Or they'd say, bad king? After we've been reading through kings for a while, they'd say, bad king, it's pretty much going to be a bad king, right? Because most of them are, right? And if it was from Israel, they all are. So we're talking about the beginning of the end of the nation of Israel, the northern uh, half of the, of the nation. So how do you guarantee failure in your life? How do you guarantee failure? Because that's what happened. The northern nation falls, it falls. How do you guarantee failure in your life? Well, um, it's making a decision and making a decision and making a decision. If you've made 200 years of bad decisions, in other words, not to follow God, to disobey him, you're, you're going you're to end up in the wrong place at the end. You're going to end up in failure. So the first way to guarantee failure in your life, not that I'm saying you want that, but I'll just tell you how it works, is decide to reject God's covenant. Decide to reject God's covenant. So the covenants were the agreements between God and man, and if we have time in this sermon, I'll show you a quick video about it, but we'll see if we get there. Um, Basically, an agreement between God and man. God will be loyal to his people, the people will be loyal to God. There'd be conditions, uh, basically obeying God's commands, mainly was the main condition they would find. But the the people of Israel failed to be loyal to God for 200 years, and the main way they failed was they worshipped idols, and idolatry was the worst disloyalty you could possibly commit against God because that's right in the first two of the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, No other gods before me, don't make a graven image, one, two. They were disobeying the first two of the Ten Commandments for 200 years straight. So they were rejecting the requirements of God's agreement with them, God's covenant with them. And let me just read some verses that spell that out. 2 Kings 17, 7 and 8 said, all this took place, basically Israel being uh, Falling and being conquered by the Assyrian Empire, all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them out of Egypt under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the King of Israel had introduced so. They were told, "Don't we're, you're going to replace these people in Canaan, in this land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to have this promised land. You're going to replace the people who were there. God had actually been patient with the people who were there. Uh, there's a lot of different tribes, but the one that's mentioned with a specific time uh, attached to them is the Amorites. God says... To Abraham, he says, your descendants are going to go into Egypt. So we're going way back in the story. Look at Joseph, the blue one with the chain around the ankle. He, and he says, your, and Abraham's the brown one, we're very, almost the very beginning of the Bible. He says, your people are going to go into uh, Egypt for 400 years. God's going to do two things there. Well, probably more than two, but I can spell it two for you here. One is he's going to make them a great nation. Remember, Isaac had one kid. That's not quite a great nation. But they were going to prosper and flourish, and they got many children. Big nation. They're going to become a big nation. And then the second thing was, while that was happening, God had his eye on the Amorites. And he said, you know what? I'm going to give them 400 years to turn, to repent, to change. But if they don't, after 400 years, they're going to be judged. So the Israelites spent 400 years there in Egypt... And when they left, even though there's that whole slavery and escaping from Pharaoh and stuff, when they left, they actually took the riches of Egypt with them, a lot of the riches of Egypt because their neighbors gave them things. It's quite a story. But God established them as a nation, and he gave the Amorites 400 years to repent, which they didn't. So when they needed a place to go, God took them to the place where the Amorites were and replaced them with the Israelites, now, this is that's great if the Israelites are going to serve God, but guess what? After a few experiments with kings, Saul, David, Solomon, then the splitting apart of the, the nation, the Israelites they tank. And the verse I just read to you says something very interesting. It says that they followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them. They were just like the Amorites. And then it says, as well as the practices that the king of Israel had introduced. The kings of Israel actually went further than the Amorites. They were worse. They were worse. Can you imagine how disappointing that is to God? And I think that's why God only gave them 200 years. He gave the Amorites 400, but he gave the Israelites only 200 because they had bad king after bad king after bad king, and they pursued idols for 200 years, and God said, it's enough. Time is up. If I can't get through to you through sending prophet after prophet after prophet to speak to you uh, and you won't repent, uh, I'm going to send the Assyrian Empire. And you know, the Israelites, it's very interesting if you look at this history of Israel because they're like right in the middle of the risk board. Anyone play the board game Risk? Anyone ever play that board game, Risk? It's, it's so oh Hardly anybody. I played it a lot when I was growing up. Um, and uh, basically, I would camp in Australia. This will only mean something to about 18 of you. Okay, I would camp in Australia, and then I would keep taking Siam back and forth from the guy who's in Asia. And I'd build up my armies, And I just sort of have a practice war every round because I need to get cards. That's how the game works. And then I could cash them in for big armies, and then I'd come out of Australia and try to take over the world. That was my strategy. Israel is Siam. It's that little nation in between all the world powers, in between Egypt, in between Assyria, in between the Ottoman Empire, the, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. I mean, they're that, in, they're right in between, the, the, like if you look at them on a map, it's like, here's Asia, here's Africa, here's Europe, here's Israel. Every world power had a shot at Israel at every different part of history. And that's why the Bible is so wonderful for its history. Because you read through it and you go, uh-huh, that king did live. That, it's so, it collaborates the whole story because you see that Israel is always under the microscope. And you know that we have the scriptures, which is the history of Israel, which was wonderful. But we also have this collaborating evidence from the Egyptians who talk about Israel, from the Assyrians who talk about Israel, from the Babylonians who talk about Israel. Because everybody attacked Israel at some point. They were everybody's neighbors. God put them in that location because they were meant to show the world who He was. Their relationship with Him was meant to show them, oh, who the real, who the Lord was, who God was. They were right on display. They couldn't be missed. But they didn't obey. And they added even more evil than the Amorites did. And so God. so they rejected the covenant. They rejected the agreement to be God's people and to showcase to the world what it l- looks like to follow God. And so God uh, brought the Assyrian Empire to bear, the first of many empires that would come into interaction with them. And then it says in Second Kings seventeen fifteen, they rejected his decrees and the covenant he made with their ancestors. Okay, this is rejecting the covenant. And the statutes he would wanted them to keep, they followed worthless idols, and they themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. You know, you become what you worship. When it says they w- followed worthless idols, and they themselves became worthless, if you want to diminish the worth of your life, worship worthless things. That'll do it. You want to dim- diminish your impact, your, your vitality, your imp- your... your what you believe behind who you are just worship worthless things worship lesser things don't worship the great don't worship the ultimate don't worship god worship lesser things because you become what you worship you become what you idolize so but if you want to enhance the worth of your life worship god right if you worship god who do you become well you become like god right you say wow i see god for who he is and i See that is good and I want that in my life I want to be like the one I worship right. I want to be gracious like God, forgiving like God. I want to be self-sacrificing like God I want to be loving like God I want to be redeeming like God, I want to be patient like God I want to be holy like God I want to be just like God, I want to be merciful like God. I want to be Truth speaking like God. I want to be refreshing like God I want to be empowering like God. You want to enhance your life, worship God. See him as good, See him as really, really good, and then desire and ask him to change you. God make me like you. because you're really good in so many ways. I want the attributes that you have, the character that you have, to be my character. And God is totally into that plan. In fact, that's His plan for our lives. is to conform us into the image of His Son, to make us like Jesus in all these different ways. So you become what you worship. How else can you destroy or or cause failure in your life? Well, decide to reject God's word. We see that in the Israelites, 2 Kings 17, 16 to 18. It says, They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. And they bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshiped Baal and they sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. That would be the worship of Molech. And they practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. There's the summary statement. Israel's kingdom ended, and the Assyrians were the instrument God used because the Lord was angry about what they had done, right? God is slow to anger, right? 200 years is a long time to put up with that. But he's also swift with his judgment, right? When it comes time to judge, it isn't dilly-dally, just it happens. Right? So you don't want to be that person who's like, oh, I'm sure God will give me a little more patience. God will give me." A... If you know that God's calling you to repent, to change, to follow him, whatever it is, respond. Don't delay. Don't be like, oh, God's patient. I guess I can just sort of, you know, goof around for another decade. That's not smart. And that's a path to failure. So, The Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence, and only the tribe of Judah was left. You break the commands of God, the commands of God will break you. Right? It's like the law of gravity. How many of you ever, when you were a kid, you thought, maybe I can fly. And you tried it. Like you jumped off something. Anyone who tried it, who will admit it? You jumped off a barn, you jumped off a shed, you jumped off a a top bunk, you had a Superman cape, or you had a a Mary Poppins umbrella, and you... (laughs) Did anyone break anything doing that? okay okay we got a couple all right all right you defy the law of gravity the law of gravity defies you right you break the commands of God the commands of God will will be your undoing will be the thing that brings breaking into your life and that's what happened with the Israelites here's the third one decide to reject God's prophets second Kings 17 13 and 14 The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. Are you stiff-necked? Do you reject God's warnings in your life? Do you reject godly people who been brought into your life to bring those warnings you know they say don't stick your finger in the socket or you'll get shocked you say ah, I want to do it my own way I've been stiff-necked at different times in my life I regretted it right one of the ones I remember very specifically my oldest brother Dave he was asking. he was just he was in college and he was asking about the girls I was interested in in high school and I told him the one girl I was most interested in and he said No, 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 not that. She's into partying. She's in drugs and alcohol. is a part of the picture. You don't want to be involved with a girl like that. And I said, well, you know, it's my life. And uh, he said, no, no, listen to me. Like, listen to, like, I've had these experiences in life. You can learn from them, and you can make better decisions, right? So don't make bad decisions. Make good decisions. And I said, listen, I don't want to, uh, um, I don't want to learn from your decisions. I want to make my own mistakes. That felt good to say. It was the dumbest thing you could say. <laughs> like, seriously, if you wanted to live your whole life and you wanted to make all your own original mistakes, you're not going to learn from any other person's mistakes. That is a dumb life. Well, It's actually a hard and dumb life. It's a really hard life, right? And when I said it, I, sounded, I thought I sounded smart, bold, brave, I was a fool to say that. Now, I didn't know how foolish that was until a couple of years later. And then I was like, that was, man, I can't believe I said that. Like, that's, that's not wisdom, right? So I wasn't listening to the prophet, my brother, who was coming into my sphere to say, no, Steve, you're gonna, don't make dumb decisions. Don't make bad decisions at this point in your life. And, uh, you know, now I've never told him. Because that's not how it goes, right? You don't go back to your brother and say, you were right. Right Now his daughter's here this morning, so you can't tell Dave, okay? Uh, sh- oh. <laughs> no promises. I can't let my relatives come to church. It's a bad thing. All right. So how do you guarantee success? Let's get on the, on the positive side. 2 Kings 18, 1-4. It says, in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years, some clues here, 29 years, that's getting close to 33, isn't it? Not like 11. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was, what do you think, right or wrong? Did what was right. You can probably read it. All right. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. I mean, these Israelites, if it moved, they worshipped it. Even if it didn't move, they worshipped it. Um and doing right in the eyes of the Lord when the nation you inherit as a king is all doing wrong and they want to keep doing wrong that's very intimidating even if you're the boss even if you're the king it's hard to lead uh, that kind of reformation in a nation because everybody wanted to do evil and but Hezekiah was a good king he's the guy on the castle the light figure in the blue in the blue poster that you can see who's holding on to the parapet and he's pointing to to God. All right, let's find out what made him successful. 2 Kings 18.5 says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. 2 Kings 18.5, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There's no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. Wow, a new gold standard in goodness, in righteousness, right? That's awesome. And uh, how did he, how was he successful? He trusted the Lord. So I would say, here's the decision Decide to trust the Lord. I mean, just decide this. You don't drift into it. You actually have to decide. You say, I, I'm choosing to trust you, Lord. I'm choosing to trust you. Now, there's some things you can do to strengthen that trust. Reading the Bible strengthens that trust. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of the Lord, right? So he, get the Bible ingested in your system. And we're doing that through this whole series. People are reading the story. January started, a bunch of people added new reading plans to that. Great. Read the Bible. Pray. Talk to the Lord in all your circumstances. You're happy, talk. You're miserable, talk. Just never stop talking to the Lord. I told you about that last week with Elijah and Elisha, right? The end prescription is you're depressed, you're sad, you're exhausted. Eat, sleep, keep talking to God. Eat, sleep, keep talking to God. That's how you, you get through it, right? So decide to trust God. That was what Hezekiah did. Then the second thing, 2 Kings 18.6 says, he held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. So decide to hold fast to God. That means sometimes in life, it really is a roller coaster. And you really need to hang on. But sometimes you go, I don't even know where to hang on. I don't know what to hang on to. What what can I trust? It seems like everything's shakable and not trustworthy. Well, the only unshakable constant in the world is the Lord. Hang on to him. Hold fast to him and do not stop following him. And God says that. Hold on to me and you'll make it. I think it's, I th- it's a decision you can make. Decide to hold on to God until you die. If you're doing my funeral someday, probably looking at people who are younger than me, one of you might be doing my funeral someday. This would be a great epitaph if it's true. Okay, only say it if it's true. But if you could say, Steve was nothing special. He wasn't spectacular, but he held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. I'd love for you to say that at my funeral, if it's true. Right? I love that. I think it's a great epitaph. What did Hezekiah do? Was he smarter? Was he better? Was he more clever? No. He held on to God. Decide. Decide. To hold fast to God. Decide to trust God. Decide to hold fast to God. And here's the last one. Decide to obey God. 2 Kings 18, 6-7. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. We already read that. And he kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. And the Lord was with him. He was successful. There's that word, what we're looking for. He was successful in whatever he undertook. And then it goes on to say one of the things he did. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Whoa. Is there a story there? You bet there is. Let's go. In the third year... Oh, I'm going to jump way down. How far down do I have to jump? I'll jump quite a ways. The king of Assyria sent his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander with a large army to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They came to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct at the upper pool. They called the king and his other guys. I'm going to summarize some of this. And the field commander said to them, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have the counsel and the might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you're depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, that former empire is what he's saying, which pe- the splintered reed of a staff, which pierces the hand of anyone who le- leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we're depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before the altar in Jerusalem? So the guy's are confused here. Hezekiah took down the idol worship and kept the worship of the Lord. But the, these guys just don't understand that. They think that was taking down the worship of the Lord. Like, so he doesn't understand. He's confused. But this gets a little wilder. Come now, make a bargain with my master, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. He's, he's, he's intimidating them, right? If you can put riders on them, because he knows their army is vastly superior to, the, to theirs. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you're depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without a word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Which may be true, by the way. But we'll keep going. We don't know if that's true, but it might be true. Because sometimes God rises up leaders to bless, and sometimes God rises up leaders to judge. And I think sometimes when we vote, we're not sure which ones are which. <laughs> and, know, <laughs> still to this day, what are you doing, Lord? All right, you just don't know. Then, I'm not, that's not a comment about politics certain political parties or anything. I don't do that. I'm not allowed to. All right. Then then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to the field commander, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. In other words, let's just keep this between us men of war and us leaders, right? The people can't handle this. But the commander replied, was it only to your master and to only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall who like you will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine I thought of doing the G version of the Bible here today but I thought I'm just going to read it to you for what it says I immediately think of the Lord of the Rings at this moment. There's a character in the Lord of the Rings, he's called the Mouth of Sauron. He's the mouthpiece, in fact, the character, if you see him in the extended version, he has a helmet that covers his whole face except for his big, ugly mouth. And the point of him is intimidation, fear, manipulation. And I think J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a Catholic Christian, knew the Bible well. There's so many times where I'm reading, because Lord of the Rings was one of the books I grew up reading a lot. I read it through several times. I read the Bible too. And I kept seeing, hey, you stole that from the Bible, J.R.R. Tolkien. Right? I think the mouth of Sauron is modeled after this guy. It's my own theory. I didn't go on some wiki page and check out with the other fanboys. No, I I think this is the mouth of Sauron, where he gets it from. This guy right here. He's the mouth of Sennacherib they say he's a field commander but i think he's there cuz he's the mouth he's the mouth of intimidation he's the threat he's good at it and he has no mercy and i mean there's an enemy of our souls that's just like that speak accusation speak intimidation just just morning noon and night if he can get through to you with fear he will he doesn't want you walking in all that you can be in god doesn't want you to stand up and worship the Lord. He wants you to worry. He wants you to worship the circumstances. He wants you to worship fear. He doesn't want you to be confident. He doesn't want you to walk upright and trust God. One of the best stories I heard out of this week of prayer, I, I, I referenced the Lord of the Rings, and I love that story too. Because it's an epic story but do you ever wonder why we love epic stories i think it's because we're in one i think we love epic stories i love movies with redemption in them like where someone's bad and they're not doing good and then at the end there's a moment where you see ah there's a breakthrough and and they're being reformed or changed or something's better or something's fixed or or they come to live a better life at the end, or something like that. I love redemption stories, but you know what? They're just an echo of the story we live in. What's Alpha about? It's about redemption. about redemption for the person who's inviting someone to Alpha and the person who's coming. It's about redemption. God is wanting to redeem the whole world. God is wanting to bring people into relationship with him. So it's no wonder that we love epic stories. I heard, a, one of the best stories I heard this week was, was just very simple. We were at the, it was a week of prayer, and we were at the prayer table, in the prayer, one of the days, and I didn't get permission to say someone's name, so I'll just tell the story without saying who they are, but I loved it. They just said, they're experiencing on, ongoing sickness in their life, but they weren't bitter about it, because God has used it to bless other people. In fact, even some people have, that's been part of their journey into coming into a relationship with the Lord. And that was inspiring to me to hear someone share that. And then I just thought, man, everyone wants to play a part in a greater story. I mean, even if that part is being sick so others can find Jesus. We want meaning. Oh, we numb it, we hide from it. I mean, we're afraid it's not there for us, but we were born for significance, we were born for meaning. We're meant to find it in relationship with Jesus and and, and advancing his kingdom. We're meant to be on an adventure for God. That's why we love adventure stories. That's why we like epic stories. And that's why we like redemption stories. Because that's the story. That's the story. Look at all those chapters. That's the story. God is showing us how far he'll go to reveal himself to us so that he can bring us into relationship with him. That's the overarching story. It's not like little, little stories. It's just like God is working. And even in this time, he's working to bring Israel back to him, to bring his people back to him, even though he's judging them. So here's this intimidation. The commander, let me read further from the mouth of Sennacherib. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, hear the the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. Maybe right now, the enemy is trying super hard to get your attention. He's trying to distract you from what we're reading. Maybe he's whispering, in your ear, it maybe doesn't sound like this, but maybe this is really what he's saying. Don't let Steve pers- persuade you to trust in the Lord. Don't let this environment, that worship, that, the scripture, don't let it persuade you to trust in the Lord. Why? Because the enemy wants you crippled over with fear and ineffective. Not standing up straight for God and walking in what he's got for you. So this will always be coming at you. Let's see what else happens. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. When he says the Lord will surely deliver us, this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own. Sounds really nice. A land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life as slaves in Assyria and not death. Do not listen to Hezekiah for he's misleading you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Harnath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seraphim, Hina, Iva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Israel's already been conquered. It's just Judah that's left. Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply, because King Hezekiah commanded, don't answer him. Then all these leaders tore their robes, and went in to tell Hezekiah what the mouth of Sennacherib had said. And when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his own clothes, and he put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, and the other guys, all wearing sackcloth, to their prophet Isaiah. You know, when you get so discouraged and so um, under attack, it's a good time to send for somebody in your life who can encourage you. This is a smart thing Hezekiah does. He sends for Isaiah, the prophet of the Lord. All these other bad kings, they didn't want the prophets to show up in their lives. Isaiah, or Hezekiah said, no, I need a word from the Lord, right? So this is what Hezekiah says. He says, this day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. as when children come to the moment of birth and there's no strength to deliver them we're that weak right now. It may be the Lord your God will hear all the word, words of this field commander, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has hear, heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. Israel's fallen. Judah is right on the edge. The army at their door is, vastly outnumbers them. Pray for the remnant that still survives. This is Hezekiah's request in his darkest hour. And when the king's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you've heard. Those words which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, when he hears a certain report, I'll make him want to return to his own countries. And there, I will cut him down with the sword. When the field commander heard, Now, some circumstances come up. The field commander hears that the king of Assyria is in another battle, and he withdraws, but he doesn't stop intimidation. And here's what he, um, what um, Sennacherib actually sends. Um, so Sennacherib sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word. So again, this would be a, like a, a, a scroll or a letter. Say to king Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Surely you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations who were destroyed by my predecessor deliver them? Oh, and then he lists all those gods. Where's the king of Hamath, the king of Arapad? Where are the kings of Lar and Seraphim and Hina and Iva? So Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers, and he read it. I've got a letter here. I wrote threat inside on the front <laughs> He received the letter from the messengers, and he read it. And after he read it, he went up to the temple of the Lord, and he spread it out before the Lord. This is a good thing to do. This is a good thing to do. Have you ever received a letter or a piece of paper that felt like a threat. I mean, maybe it was the results of, of an exam, or maybe it was a bill, something from a lawyer. Maybe it was a medical report. Maybe it was your report, your report card. I think a great thing to do is when you receive a threat, is just spread it out before the Lord. Just spread it out before the Lord and say, Lord, this is real. This is real. This is a real threat. This is the, I'm not making this up. I'm not just freaking out about something. This is real. There's some real consequences that come with this paper that I'm spreading out before you. But now I'm not just going to look at the circumstances. I'm going to take a great big look at who you are. Listen to how Hezekiah does it. He says, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim. He's starting to remind himself who God is. You alone are God over the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib that he sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to these nations and their lands. The letter is true. They've thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord our God. That you alone, Lord our God. You know what they did? You know what the followers of Jesus did? They did this exact same thing. Hundreds of years later, Jesus would come and he'd gather people around him and teach them to follow him and to be like him and to live for him and, and pass on his message to other people. And you know what he, he did, what they did after he was gone? People came and arrested them and said, listen, this talk about Jesus has to cease. No more. In fact, you can read it in Acts chapter 4. Says, And they, they, they said, commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And then they threatened them further. And if you go farther into Acts 4, uh, you'll find out that on their release, Peter and John, that was who was threatened, went back to their own people, the Christians, and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, what did they do? They raised their voices together in prayer to God. And this is their prayer. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea They're reminding themselves who God is, just like Hezekiah. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And these are the quotes, these is David's words. Why do the nations rage, like the Assyrians, and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one, Jesus Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided before should happen. You know, sometimes the opposition you face, the threats that you face, are actually going to work out, and God's got a purpose for them. I'm not saying that God's the one bringing the threat or God's the one, I, you know, there's lots of different debates about how that all works, but God can bring incredible purpose into your most threatened moments. And that's what they said. Look, it, these guys threatened, but God was working in that. Jesus went to the cross. He died for us. And now we have access to God like we never had before. And listen to this. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants To speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The end of the story with Hezekiah is that Sennacherib does have to go back, and it's actually two of his sons that kill him with the sword and then run for the hills, and another replaces him as king. And the story with the disciples is that just after they received this incredible threat against their lives, the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them, and the gospel spreads like never before. So I would not be surprised when we're saying, we want people to know the Jesus that we know. We want people to have Well, we have. We have something for people. When we're launching something like Alpha, I would not be surprised if the threat level goes up, if the intimidation level goes up, if the voice of the enemy gets more intimidating. And I think the response of of the believers is, Lord, consider the threats and enable us to speak your word more boldly. I'm going to put this on the floor, too, because for some of you, it's not the threat of some, you know, big bill you can't pay or some legal thing that's standing in your way, but this is actually threatening to you. I invite you to take it home and spread it out before the Lord. I've got a a couple people, I think they would just love Alpha. They'd love eating a supper together. They'd love having that opportunity. I think it's just going to bless their lives, and of course, the transformation that Jesus Brings in a life is no small transformation. It's massive. It's a massive change. We're not talking about a small change. We're talking about massive change. But there's still that intimidation factor to invite someone. But the upside is so huge. It's so huge. So I don't know what you need to spread out before the Lord. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to end here this morning. But I don't know what it is you need to spread out before the Lord. But you need you need to take those things... You're not meant to live in fear. You're not meant to live in intimidation. In fact, there's a little, you're a little bit scary to the enemy if you ever get set free of those things. I remember hearing a story about a pastor and his wife and they were so, they were so discouraged in what they were doing. It felt like they weren't having much effect and... And it was a very discouraging season they were in life and lots of criticism, lots of things coming their way and there's lots of reasons why they should be down. They went for a walk and they talked about it and in their talk, they began to turn towards who is our God, who is our God, who is our God. And as they began to think about who their God was, how great he is and how powerful he is, they suddenly realized, what are we doing? You know, having, we're just having all this self-pity and life is hard and stuff like that. We are called by God to overcome these kind of things. And so the story he told, I remember him telling the story. He said, they're walking along, and there was sort of a set of railroad tracks, and they sat down beside the railroad tracks. That's the story told. And he said, and we started to pray together. And at first it was feeble, and then it began to grow, and by the end we were laying a licking on the enemy. Let's pray. Lord, you know every threat. You know everything of intimidation, manipulation, everything the enemy is going to try to do to keep his people tamed. Lord, that's not what you've called us to. You've called us to an adventure in following you. You've called us to an adventure. You've called us to real risks. You've called us to uh, uh, reaching out for you you called us to go into, into spaces that are new to us, to, to do things that are a little challenging or maybe very challenging. You've called us to, when it's, it doesn't feel like, oh, it's not the right moment, I don't know, to still speak, to still invite, to still invest in other people. You've called us to greater risks. And uh, without you there, just, some of them don't even make sense. But Lord, consider the threats, and enable us, enable us here at Hillcrest. Anyone who's visiting, who knows you, just enable us to speak your word more clearly, to, to invite more clearly, to love more clearly, to to engage. There's so many th- ways in which there's a limiter on what we do because we just sort of we get to that point and fear holds us back. Lord, I want to. I just pray for people that they break through walls of fear this week. They break through walls of fear today. Already, some of them, they're already broken through right now because they've been listening to the Scripture. And the Scripture has empowered them. Their faith is growing. That's happened because of the Scripture. Lord, we praise you for what you've written in there so that we can be encouraged. You didn't leave us that record just so that we go, oh, that's the history of Israel. You want people who are emboldened in you. And so, Lord, we, we want to respond to your Scripture as it's written. We want to respond. We want to be like Hezekiah at his wit's end. Doesn't know where to turn, yet you are the one he puts all his trust in. Lord, that's where we're at. No matter where we're at, we want to put our trust in you. We want to put our trust in you. Yeah. So, Lord, you know what it looks like to walk boldly this week. Some of us are getting a picture, too. Lord, help us to embrace that and uh, to remember that when we don't know where our help comes from, when we look to the hills, where's my help come from? It comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. You're our help. You are very present help in time of troubles, and we're going to keep looking to you. Yeah, so praise you, praise you, praise you, praise you. You deserve all the praise for the way that you lift us up. We, we are, we're, we're worried, we're afraid, and you bring us to greater faith and greater action. And, Lord, we just praise you for the work that you do in us. All right. So we're going to worship the Lord.